Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 33. Hey, that's the that's the age at which Jesus uh, was crucified. It has absolutely nothing to do with today's episode. I just thought that was an interesting sidelight. But this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, um, and you can go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com to learn more about the podcast and to listen to past podcasts and to get links from today's podcast. And my name is Rick. I'm author of the just-released book, The God Who Fights For You, and last year the book Spiritual Grit, which spawned two devotions, one for teenagers and one for adults. So uh, as we're heading into the fall here, if you have somebody in your life, um, a teenager or an adult, that because it's the start of something new right now, might be more open and interested in diving into a devotion Get them, get them both the book, Spiritual Grit, and get them one of those two devotions as a companion for them, and might be a help to someone as they're uh, exploring. And uh, there's two times during the year where people make changes in their life. One is obvious, January 1st, that whole New Year thing gives people an outside prompt to uh, pursue change in their life. But the second most uh, effective time for making changes in your life is right now. We're right on the cusp of September when kids are going back to school and we're out of the sort of summer rhythm of life and um, people are re-riveting their attention onto their lives again. And so this is a perfect time to introduce something new into that. So so get Spiritual Grit or one of the two devotions that goes with it, or you can get a copy of The Jesus-Centered Life, which is a book that I wrote and was published, uh, I don't know, three years ago now. And it's really the foundation for this podcast. So if you've never read The Jesus-Centered Life, and there are those who are on our Pigs page, which is our private Facebook uh, group for those who are fans of this uh, podcast and want to connect in community with others who are also fans, uh, there are people on the Pigs page who have been on that page for years and, to my surprise, have never read The Jesus-Centered Life. Uh, There's just a couple of people that said, I'm reading it now. So if that's you, if you've never read it, it makes a great companion to the themes and the pursuits that we explore on this podcast. So pick up The Jesus-Centered Life, or if you have someone in your life again who you think might be interested, um, give it as a gift, a surprise gift. Yeah, I know it's not your birthday, or it's Christmas. It's not Christmas, and it's not really anything. I just wanted to give you a gift. What an act of grace. So today is the official 11th episode of this series it was really a nine-part series called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions, and it was tied to the nine questions that all human beings have in life that we had isolated um, when we were uh, creating the Jesus-Centered Bible's uh, special features. Uh, we brainstormed this idea that, well, what if we narrowed down the, the most important questions human beings have, then explored how Jesus answered those questions, and that's what we did. We came up with nine essential questions, and then I wrote essays throughout the four Gospels, uh, stopping wherever Jesus addressed one of those questions. 
So that, that was the whole idea behind this series, is to explore each of those nine questions, and yet we have 11 episodes. So that's because we have two little PS overtime episodes here that uh, are not—they're maybe connected to those nine essential questions, but they kind of stand alone because they're so important. So we thought we'd throw in these two last PS episodes that target sort of these sub-questions that are so important and so universal, I think they deserve their own episode. So this episode will focus on trying hard versus letting go. Trying hard versus letting go. Another uh, another way you could look at this is, and you'll you'll see where we're going with this as we get into the podcast. But another way you could look at this, trying hard versus letting go, is also Old Testament versus New Testament. The Old Testament, in so many ways, represents the law and all of the ways we are to keep the law and all of the systems of culture and spirituality and social conventions that we have that were built up around keeping the law. That's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is about uh, the Messiah, Jesus, and the era of grace that he ushers in. And the two seem to be in tension. Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament seem to be in tension, and uh, trying hard to be a good person, which is really, uh, if, you, if you had to pinpoint the one sort of um, moral pursuit of all human beings, it is trying hard to be a good person. And you hear this uh, from coming right out of the mouths of people who are just saying, I'm trying to be as good a person as I can, but also a whole culture is set up to honor those who try hard to be a good person. So is life really about trying hard to be a good person? Um, and how does that reflect the life that those in the Old Testament lived? And that is pitted against an intention with the grace of the New Testament and the invitation Jesus has given to us to let go of rule-keeping. So these two things are intention. Sometimes people deal with them by just, you know, basically ignoring the Old Testament or ignoring what Jesus says about grace in the New Testament. So... I thought I'd do something for this episode that I've only ever teased about in past episodes. I've often given you a little vignette, a little uh, taste of what my Tuesday night group is like, um, but on this episode, I'm going to try to take you back to this, this week's Tuesday night gathering in my home and put you there to uh, explore this whole issue of trying hard versus letting go because this is exactly what we did with about 20 teenagers in my home on Tuesday night. Um, I've mentioned before, and don't let the fact that um, I led uh, a bunch of teenagers through this experience uh, throw you off here, I don't do anything different with adults than I do with teenagers, not even a little bit. <laughs> same questions, same kind of engagement in my experience working with both adults and teenagers is that teenagers are basically quicker and more free about participating in this kind of exploration than adults are. Adults, red alert here, adults have a lot more baggage than teenagers because we've been living longer, and especially Christian adults have a lot of baggage around pursuing truths about Jesus in the Bible. Um, we've been told a certain way that we're supposed to do that for our whole lives. Teenagers have been told less so. <laughs> so uh, what I'm going to do is invite you into... The experience that we uh, that I led these these young people through on Tuesday night to get at this question of trying hard versus letting go. So, to kick off, uh, 
the uh, the previous week in, in that group, we had been having uh, the the pursuit that night was discovering what Jesus believes. We all say that we believe in Jesus, but we don't take the rabbit trail, the important rabbit trail, to discover, well, what does Jesus believe? Um, we, we know that we believe in him, but, but real belief in Jesus is to slowly immerse ourselves in what Jesus believed about things in life and about the kingdom of God. And so we spent uh, two weeks ago the whole evening pursuing what Jesus believes, and uh, in one part of that evening, uh, one of the uh, small discussion groups that I had split the large group into was uh, they, had, they were assigned a certain section of Scripture, and they were supposed to mine things that Jesus believes from that section of Scripture. And one of the por- portions that they had was when Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs for the first time without him. If you remember, uh, when he sends out his disciples, he's going to send them out for several weeks, and they had three things they were supposed to do. They were supposed to tell people that the Messiah was here, the good news of the gospel, and they were supposed to heal people of incurable illnesses, and they were supposed to cast demons out of people. That, that is a daunting, three-pronged job description right there. And then what Jesus does, sort of the cherry on the top of this, is he says, as you go out, you can't take any money with you, you can't take any change of clothes with you, and you can't arrange ahead of time where you're going to stay. I want you to be completely stripped of the things that you normally count on. And this group, this discussion group, was trying to figure out, well, what what does that say about what Jesus believes? And they said an interesting thing. They said, Jesus believes in minimalism. (laughs) And uh, when they first said, uh, when we got back together as a whole group, and I was uh, uh, going around the group saying, what, what did you discover? And this group said, Jesus believes in minimalism. I said, what, what do you mean by that? And so they recounted the story, and they said, they, Jesus believes in stripping us of everything that we normally depend on so that we're more likely to depend on Him. And uh, uh, as we were uh, interacting around this, uh, this belief that Jesus believes in minimalism, one of the members of that little group, who I mentioned la- in last week's episode, his name is Logan... Logan, he was trying to make an, uh, an example from his own life about what minimalism looks like, and he said, um, I'm basically lazy, um, but I mean that in a positive way. So his girlfriend, who was sitting there, gave him a big jab of the elbow in the side and said, you can't say that. You can't say lazy is a, is a good thing. And he said, well, let me explain. Here's how I mean it positively. And then he explained that it, in his dependence upon Jesus— he has learned to stop trying so hard and even stop preparing for some things. And I understood exactly what he was saying, but it was a little bit like uh, it created some tension in the group because it's not a normal thing that you hear. So afterward, I asked Logan to text me, in his own words, what he thinks lazy means relative to that discussion, and he sent me a brilliant response, and I want to read it to you. Here's what he said. He said, lazy means that I don't even try to take care of things with my own ideas. So it's like when someone who's lazy in school shows up unprepared for a project. I show up in life unprepared for the project. I'm lazy in that I'm dependent on Jesus in the moment. That kind of lazy allows me to be not lazy when I'm pursuing people. (laughs) This was really brilliant. He's trying to say... The less that he 
controls and works hard at understanding what he's to do next, and the more he depends on Jesus for that guidance, it allows him to be locked in and attentive and awake to the people around him, because he's not playing out a script, he's listening to Jesus at the same moment he's engaging a person, and that makes him really riveted both on Jesus and on that person in the moment. And he called that lazy in that he was not trying to prepare in advance of that. Instead, he chose dependence. I really love this line when, when he uh, compares a person who's lazy in school who shows up unprepared for a project, and then he says, I show up in life unprepared for the project. I just love that. That's going to stick with me for a long time. But there is a tension that he's introducing here, and the tension here is between the law, which is the stuff we're expected to do, and grace, the way of living that sort of embraces the kind of laziness Logan is describing. So the, another way of saying this is, what are we responsible to do in life, and what is Jesus responsible to do? On one side, we have how hard are we supposed to be trying here, and on the other side, um, how much are we supposed to expect Jesus to do? Uh, what do we? What is what is a legitimate uh, expectation we have in life for what Jesus does versus what we do? And this tension between these two things, I, I, I'll say this again, also mirrors the tension that we have between the Old and New Testaments, and that's really important to explore because the Old and New Testaments are um, expressions of the good news that, that God has brought to, into our lives, but from two very different perspectives and two different eras. So I thought it'd be interesting to, to start off here with, uh, and this is exactly, again, I'm walking you through what we did on Tuesday night with 20 teenagers in my living room. This is how we processed this. So we started off first by talking about what Logan had said the previous week about laziness, and then I said that it's important to kind of get our foundation under us by uh, exploring what Jesus said about the law and its relationship to grace, what Jesus said about trying hard versus letting go. So in Matthew chapter 5, at the very beginning of his ministry, uh, he is uh, on a hillside, and this is very rare for Jesus to do in the rest of the Gospels, but for about two chapters, he's just unloading uh, a, a mountain of truth on people who are sitting there on the side of a mountain. <laughs> and he, he's just uh, talking about things that are true in the kingdom of God. Um, it's not really an interaction, for the most part. He's just delivering truth for a couple of chapters. And that's rare. Most of his quote-unquote teaching times were um, defined by interactions and experiences. But in this case, he is just unloading on the people all of these truths about the kingdom of God that are unlike anything they've ever heard before. And so in the middle of that, in Matthew 5, he says this, uh, "'Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose.'" Now that phrase is really important. We're going to come back to this again, so I'm going to repeat it. Jesus says, I don't, mis "'Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
that anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what an ominous thing he says here at the end. If your righteousness is not better than the righteousness of the teachers of, the, of religious law and the Pharisees, who seemed like they lived impossible lives, apparently keeping all of the law and all of the hundreds and hundreds of rules that had sprung out of the law, um, Jesus is saying, if you don't do this even better than they do, then you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this seems just like an impossible standard. It's like asking a person who not to high jump over a high bar, but to high jump over a pole vault bar. It's just too high. It's impossible. And uh, here Jesus is entering into this tension between the law and grace by saying, hey, I'm not coming here to wipe out that stuff. I've, I've come here to accomplish it. Um, I, I want to make sure that the purpose of the law is fulfilled. And so, therefore, don't wipe out the law. Um, don't misunderstand why I'm coming. So the question that we raised Tuesday night was uh, two questions, actually, pretty simple. How did Jesus accomplish the purpose of the law, and how does rule-keeping, exemplified by the law, relate to the freedom expressed in grace? So how did Jesus do this, accomplish the purpose of the law, and how does rule-keeping, the rule-keeping that is inherent in the law, relate uh, to the freedom expressed by grace? Those are the two questions. So what we did was I, I said we were going to first explore this tension between these two things using a scene from the Oscar-winning film Mr. Holland's Opus. Now, if you haven't seen Mr. Holland's Opus, I think it's about a 20-year-old film now. Richard Dreyfus is the star of this film. He plays the title character, Glenn Holland, and he won an Oscar for his performance in this film. Um, it's essentially the story of this man, Glenn Holland, who um, his dream is to become a composer, who composes uh, classical music, and that's what he wants his whole life to be spent doing, composing and conducting classical music. But early on, when he's just getting started, he knows that he has to earn a paycheck somehow, so he becomes a high school music, music teacher with the intention that this would just be a temporary gig until he gets his feet under, underneath him and he starts um, getting some of his compositions compo uh, published and performed. So he, the film starts off with him kind of grudgingly becoming a music teacher and almost the looking at the clock all the time, wondering how long he has to keep doing this. And the, the, the narrative of the film is that this temporary gig as a high school music teacher turns into four decades as a teacher in this high school. He never does um, leave that to become a full-time composer. And threaded throughout the whole film is this dream he has, this big dream he has of, of composing this, uh, this opus. And it runs to, as a thread through the whole thing where he's always working on it for four decades. But he never leaves his teaching job. And uh, you get to see what impact he has in the lives of these students along the way and the beauty of his life, uh, the beauty of a life that got sidetracked from its dream but found another dream in the midst of it. So in the scene, we're, we're going to listen to a scene in just a second, and 
It's a it's a long scene. It's like seven minutes long, and we're going to listen to it, and there's some silences in the scene, um, so just hang with it. But let me just set up this scene for you so that you can kind of imagine what these silences mean. So so Glenn Holland is about to leave for the day, and um, he's, he's walking out when he hears one of his students trying once again to, to learn how to play her clarinet, and she's doing a terrible job. And he's tired and exhausted and disappointed, and he just wants to go home. And so on his way out, he, he says, why don't you just give it up? And um, the, this is the tipping point for this girl. It just crushes her. And um, he comes back in to talk to her because he hears her crying. And he, he engages her about what's going on in her and what, why there's such a struggle in learning to play the instrument. And you'll, you'll hear this girl leave, and then the next scene is when she comes back, and he will engage her again about this and try to help unlock whatever is blocking her from playing this instrument. So that is the scene we're going to listen to right now. Here we go. Lang. To learn a musical instrument. I just, well, I just want to be good at something. My sister's got a ballet scholarship to go to Juilliard, and my brother's going to Notre Dame on a football scholarship. My mother's won the blue ribbon for watercolors at the state fair so many times they've retired the category. My father's got the most beautiful voice. He's. I'm the only one in my family who's. I, I, I just can't. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any difference anyway. I... giving up the clarinet. I, I'm just I'm just goofing everybody else up anyway. So um, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for trying. Is it any fun? I wanted it to be. You know what we've been doing wrong, Miss Lang? We've been playing the notes on the page. Well, what else is there to play? Well, there's a lot more to music than notes on a page. 
These guys, for example. Now, they can't sing, and, and they have absolutely no harmonic sense, and they're, they're playing the, the same three chords over and over again. And I love it. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why? I don't know. Yeah, you do. Because it's fun? That's right. Because playing music is supposed to be fun. It's about heart. It's about feelings and moving people and something beautiful and being alive. And it's not about notes on a page. I could teach you notes on a page. I can't teach you that other stuff. Do me a favor. Pick up your clarinet and play with me. Okay. And this time, no music. Oh, what? Because you already know it. It's already in your head and your fingers and your heart. You just don't trust yourself to know that. Okay. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three, four. Okay, let's do it again. And this time, not so much lip on the mouthpiece. Okay. One, two, three, four. Oh. All right, no, 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 don't do that. Let me ask you a question. What? When you look in the mirror, what do you like best about yourself? My hair. Why? Um, my father always says that it reminds him of a sunset. Play the sunset. Close your eyes. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Don't stop playing. into an orchestra scene at graduation where the girl, Gertrude, who has bright red hair, plays that same clarinet solo in this beautiful rendition of this song uh, in this graduation ceremony. And so you see her come full circle from uh, ready to give this up to this one tipping point encounter she has with her teacher, Mr. Holland, teaches her something about music that she desperately needed to learn and not just about music, but about life. And that's really what this film is about. Uh, it's about the tension between 
playing notes on the page and playing the sunset, as Mr. Holland uh, urges her to do. And I think it's the same tension that we find in um, trying hard versus letting go. So after we play this scene, here's the two questions we ask, and uh, these are good ones for you to ponder. And then I'm going to give you a sense of how these young people responded to these questions. The first one is, what is the transition happening in this scene? So uh, we're moving from something to something. So what is that transition that we see in this scene? And then the second thing is, what is the relationship between the notes on the page and playing the sunset? You have to have both. So what's the relationship between those two things? So then what happens in the group is it's a free-for-all. I, I throw these questions out, and then I write everything that they say up onto a whiteboard so that we can interact with these things. And, and then I, for, this, for this particular one, because I knew I was going to do this, I took a picture of this whiteboard. And so here's what they said. They said uh, it, with the transition happening in the scene is really about her moving from trying too hard and working so hard to fix her mistakes um, from playing notes on the page to playing from her heart which is hard to pin down. It's hard to describe what that really is. How do you move from, from just playing the notes on the page to sort of embodying the music and playing it? Um, uh, we have several musicians in our group, and one of them said that the important thing here is to think about the music as a phrase or a story, that you're telling the whole story of the music, not just the, the two-dimensional story that you find on the page. That that these notes represent musical notes, yes, but there's something behind just the notation of those notes and the playing of those notes that really makes the music. And in order to play that music, you have to sort of see the whole phrase of the music, the whole story of the music. What is it, what is it supposed to sound like when it's beautiful? Um, so one, one kid said that uh, she saw that she was caught up comparing herself to her family, that She'd put tremendous pressure on herself to do something great, and that pressure, the way she translated it is, I just have to get the notes right. If I just get the notes right, then maybe I can do something great. And in the end, it was that, uh, that pursuit that almost destroyed her. She just couldn't get the notes right. But she's caught in this tension of, will I ever uh, have something great about me that is... Uh, in, in my family, everyone has something great, but I don't. Uh, another one said that transition was from self-consciousness to believing and trusting. I thought that was really insightful. She's so self-conscious about making mistakes that what Mr. Holland does is try to help her let go of some of that self-consciousness to simply believe and trust in what she already knows and, and that she is, she's able to play the music without paying attention to the notes. So she moves from self-consciousness to believing and trusting, from self-deprecation to appreciating herself. That's another transition that happens in this scene. And one, one of the kids said, I thought this was profound, that she gained her independence in this scene. And if you think about it, she's, a, she's captive to the pursuit of getting the notes right, and she moves into freedom from that, into a sort of an independence from the notes on the page, and that's what allows her to play the music. When she focuses too much, she forgets that these notes are going somewhere, that they're creating a holistic, beautiful story. 
And then the last the last couple of comments about this were that you know, going back to how Logan defined what lazy is, lazy means to focus on the overarching goal of the piece of music that you're playing. To understand how the song feels when you play it is to sort of let go, to stop planning and and grinding your way through it, to to let something else, some other part of your being, um, uh, play that music. So in the end, it's about enjoying playing the instrument, not getting the notes right. So what happened then is that I gave I gave everyone uh, two two apparently uh, intention um, passages from Scripture. One we've already read that Jesus said in Matthew five, and then we compared that to something that Paul said in Romans. And I gave them these two passages, and I broke them into trios, and I and I said I I want you to look at these two passages and think about our conversation about this scene from Mr. Apollon's opus and then answer these two overarching questions. How did Jesus accomplish the purpose of the law? And how does the rule-keeping exemplified by the law relate to the freedom expressed in grace? So um, I'm going to read you the two uh, passages here so you get a sense of what they were digging into in their trio, and then we'll come back to these, these questions I asked them to pursue together. And then they came back, we came back as a large group, and we discovered what they had discovered in their groups. But here's the two passages again. This one will be, the first one will be familiar. I've already read it. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So I want you to think about the tension between these two things and uh, how, how to resolve this tension between these two things. Um, so Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." There we have Jesus making a shocking statement. Now we move to Romans chapter 5, where Paul is writing about um, the interplay between the law and grace. And here's what he says. This is Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given— but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift, who is Jesus, leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness— 
for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us a right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's the two chunks of Scripture that they uh, had to wrestle out. And the questions again were, again, how did Jesus accomplish the purpose of the law? And how does this rule-keeping stuff represented by the law relate to the freedom expressed in grace. And so now let's go through what these groups came up with as they dug into this tension between these two things. And just so you know, um, what's typical that happens in these environments, um, I'm always introducing tension into these environments, two things that apparently seem to contradict each other, but um, in Jesus emerge together. In fact, Jesus often said things that seem to be apparently contradictory, until you slow down and pay better attention to what's going on. So that's what we do in these groups. We invite people into this tension, and they dig and dig and dig in the ground until they begin to see the heart of Jesus and his genius artistry and how these two apparently contradictory things work together. So here are some of the things that they said once we gathered back together. The law, as it's been defined here, and the law is the law of Moses, and then plus the hundreds of other things that Pharisees and the teachers of the law have added throughout the centuries. The law is really a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional heart, the heart of God. So the law was given to us to represent what, what is true, what is good in, in the heart of God. But it isn't the heart of God. It's a representation of it. So it's a two-dimensional expression of a three-dimensional reality that exists in God's heart. Uh, Jesus lived the law perfectly, one group said. So do we have to as well? If Jesus lived the law perfectly, and when we invite him into our hearts, he's living out that, um, that perfect law-keeping uh, from the inside out. So do we really have to keep the law. Well, that, that's in, actually in tension with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, who said to the people, if you don't keep the law better than the uh, Pharisees and the, and the rulers, um, then you're not even going to make it to heaven. So there, there's this tension of, hey, if Jesus has already done it, if he's already accomplished it and he lives in us, then why do we have to try so hard? Well, uh, what does that mean then, that Jesus said you have to do better than the Pharisees? One group said, answered that and said, well, Jesus' purpose in Matthew 5 was to shock people awake. Um, they had been following this mindset um, for centuries, that the goal of life was to do the best job you could, to try as hard as you could to keep every aspect of the law. And of course, the ones in uh, the subset in their society whose full-time job was to try to do that were the Pharisees. And when Jesus says you have to do even better than them, what he's trying to do is shock them into an awakeness that it's not possible to do this. You, the, the mindset that you have and that you've carried for centuries 
is not possible to keep. Um, let me even up the ante. It's not just that you have to rise your level to the level of Pharisees. You have to do better than them. So he's trying to wake them up, to challenge them, you know, to use our metaphor from Mr. Holland's opus, to challenge them to live beyond the notes on the page, to challenge them to play the sunset instead of just the notes on the page. So anything expressed on the page, these kids said, is the, is the equivalent of the law. Now, here's where we got into a discussion about well, then do you not need the notes on the page? Do you just play whatever you feel? And the truth is that form of music is terrible. <laughs> if you have not learned the notes on the page, then it's very difficult to play with those notes, to, to play them in freedom. You need both, and that's true of the law as well. We need to understand what the law represents, the standards and values and those things that are important in the kingdom of God because they're important in the heart of God. We need to understand what what the heart of God really cares about, um, what he doesn't like and what he likes. And the notes on the page are an expression. It's a way of helping us understand what he values. And it's important for us to understand what God values, but not, by extension, to simply work as hard as we can to make sure we're playing all of those notes correctly. Um, that's where the, the tension comes in. So anything expressed on the two-dimensional page, or the law, um, is really an expression, again, a two-dimensional expression of a three-dimensional reality, which is the heart of God. So what does it mean to play the sunset? Well, it means to invest your emotion, your vulnerability, and your authenticity into it, to make a heart investment in whatever that is. And if you, if you extend that into this tension between the law and grace, grace means that you understand what the notes are, but you're free then to play under, uh, in that context. You're free then to play those notes and make something beautiful out of that. And the way that we play is we, we make ourselves vulnerable. We, we do something that is authentic to who we are. We, we invest our emotion in whatever that thing is. It's interesting that in, in the scene that we listen to, the girl Gert, Gertrude has this very long red hair. It's the most distinguishing characteristic about her. You immediately know who it is as soon as she walks in the scene because she has this very distinctive hair. And it's interesting what Mr. Holland asks her. When you look in the mirror, what do you like best about yourself? And she... she she looks at her hair and says, of course, my hair. And, and then he asks her, why? And it's because her father compares it to the sunset. And when he says, play the sunset, what is he really inviting her to do? He's inviting her to get in touch with something that is deep in her heart, not in her head. It's not in the note-keeping part of her soul. It's in the beauty part of her soul. That's what he's asking her to play with. And don't play with music and close your eyes. Try to shut off all of that and relax and let go and play. So one of the groups said what he's really doing is inviting us to invest our essence, whatever makes us who we are, to participate with him in living out the law in an organic way, not a note-playing way, but an organic way. That's only possible in a relationship, by the way. Um, we, we, he's, he's really inviting us off of the two-dimensional page into a three-dimensional relationship with him, where we work out what it means to live righteously in the world, 
from the inside out. So one group said, we first get to know Jesus, and then we get his spirit in us, actually living in us, playing the notes uh, inside out through, through who we are, through the particular unique filter of our essence. Those notes get played differently with every person. Uh, and, and the way that we're able to play those notes is we have the, the, the composer himself living inside of us. It's not no longer just following the notes, it's following the composer himself. So if you go, one, one group, I loved this, they said, if you go beyond the notes on the page, you can pursue the why behind the notes. I, th- I think that's so profound. In the scene that we listened to, what Mr. Holland was encouraging Gertrude to do was get beyond keeping, the, uh, keeping a mistake-free performance by, by playing each note the way it was supposed to be played, to get to the why of the music, the beauty of the music, see if she could capture the flow and story of that music. So going beyond the notes of the page allow us to pursue the why behind those notes, and going beyond the law to the heart that expressed the law in the first place allows us to experience the why behind the law. And this is exactly what Jesus was trying to get through the thick heads of the Pharisees when he said, uh, I am master of the law, I'm not, under it. I'm not a servant of the law, I'm master of the law. He's really saying, I'm master of the notes. I'm not a servant of the notes, I'm not trying to play every note right like you are. I'm trying to play music with those notes. So you miss the purpose of the music when you complain about my disciples picking wheat as a snack on the Sabbath. You've missed the heart, the why behind the law when you complain the way you do. You don't understand why that law was given in the first place. You've missed my heart. And uh, because my heart is what matters, I can play with the notes. I don't have a problem with my disciples eating the grain on the Sabbath because it's not breaking the why behind the law in the first place. So um, we're encouraged here, and one of the groups said, to play what makes, it, what makes it you, meaning the music that he wants is filtered through our unique essence and our identity, and, that, and that's really what he's craving in the end. He's craving the kind of particular beauty that gets expressed through each one of us, not the robotic sameness of the, of the beauty we see. Other, one of the kids in the group gave this great example. He's a place kicker. Uh, his name is Preston, and he's a place kicker on his high school football team, and he's learning how to do this, and his coach told him that there is a robotic way to, to, to kick a ball through the uprights. There's tons of YouTube videos and lots of training and coaching regimens that will teach a kicker the sort of robotic notes on the page way to, to kick the ball. But his coach had just told him that, that week that if you're going to be a good kicker, you can't kick robotically. If you notice all great kickers kick the ball differently, they have their own expression that fits their physiology and how they've learned to succeed at kicking. And so his coach was saying, you have to find the way that it works best for you as a kicker. And so he was, he was saying, this is the same thing as playing the notes on the page or playing the sunset. I have to find that sort of mysterious, unique uh, expression of kicking a football that matches who I am. So really what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us to, in, in musical terms, into a completion of the harmonic beauty of the notes. He wants us to um, resolve the tension that is in the law um, through our relationship with him. 
And one of the kids looked up what, what it means to resolve a note, and it was really remarkable. It was He played a, a note that just stayed the same, and then as you listen to this note, you're, you know, there's this kind of tension that builds up because you want that note to be completed by a different note, and then in the audio file he played for us, it is completed by this other note. And he compared that to the way that grace resolves the law, or Jesus accomplishes the purpose of the law, he brings that resonant resolve to the law in himself. And the way that one person compared this to is when Paul said in one of his letters, he, he said he was trying to defend his uh, the, the, the reason why he, he uh, was teaching the things he was teaching, and he said, uh, because people were complaining that he was screwing up and maybe even sinning, and Paul said, I don't even think about whether I'm sinning or not. The Spirit will let me know if I am. It's a radical form of dependence and vulnerability with the Spirit of Jesus when we say, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm not paying attention to my own notes on the page. I'm trying to pay attention to Jesus, who's teaching me how to play music. If I play a wrong note, he'll let me know. He'll let me know. So in this sense, Jesus is inviting us into the kind of intimacy that elevates us out of the notes on the page, the rules, the law-keeping, and into playing the sunset, the law lived out through our heart. That's where we ended on Tuesday night. And I think it's a, a, it's a, a beautiful exclamation mark. How does trying hard work with the freedom of grace? How, how do those two work together? Well, of course, we have to learn how to play the notes, and, and we have to uh, put forth effort in our life. But if we're going to live lazy, like Logan says, we will allow ourselves to be dependent, vulnerable, authentic, trusting the Spirit of Jesus in us as we move into life, so that what we're doing with our life is literally playing music, not playing notes. That's what he's inviting us into. I want you to, as we're closing here, I want you to just close your eyes for a second, unless you're driving, and then just imagine you're closing your eyes. <laughs> I don't want this to lead to anyone's death. But close your eyes if you can, and I just want you to answer Mr. Holland's question. I'm going to pause after I ask this question. When you look in a mirror, what do you like best about yourself and why? When you look in a mirror, what do you like best about yourself and why? Just silently answer that for yourself. So now the encouragement Jesus is giving you is, in your life, play whatever that word is that you're thinking of right now, that the why behind the thing that you like the most about yourself when you look in the mirror, play that. For Gertrude, it was play the sunset. What is it for you? What does that look like for you? When you do, you'll be playing music, not just notes on a page, and you'll be living in the freedom of grace not the, the discipline of the law. And it's for freedom that Jesus came. He came to set us free from our captivity. And some of us are captive to rule-keeping. Some of us are captive to the notes on the page. And he wants to release us from that. Now, not forget the notes on the page, but to play music instead of um, grind our way through. I'm going to close today by playing you a song off the album I mentioned last week, and we heard a little snippet from a song from it, Andrew Osenga's new album called The Painted Desert. There's a song on this album, and again, it's such a brilliant album. Um, I can't stop listening to it. There's just so much beauty in this album. 
Uh, but the last song on the album is called Give Up, and I thought it would be an appropriate way to end a podcast on giving up, <laughs> because to live lazy for Jesus means to give up trying so hard to, make, to play the notes right and instead depend on him. So let's listen to this song by Andrew Osenga as a closing today. And uh, I'm going to come back right after the end of the song with a word at the end here. But let's listen to Andrew Osenga's Give Up.
notice even in the, the, the construction of that composition, as you move through the song, you're longing for it to resolve. You're longing, longing for it to complete, and it crescendos, and then it goes to silence, and he sings his last paragraph, hold my heart, I can't go on. Bone dry, closed mind, help me to give up, help me to give up. And what he's pointing to here is uh, what he references earlier in the song, that to surrender is to trust. And here, the resolve of the song is his surrender in the end. And our resolve in rule-keeping is to surrender to the freedom we find in Jesus. If you're a captive today, he's inviting you to stop playing the notes on the page and to start playing the sunset or whatever word he gave you today. So, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com for links to everything we've talked about today, and I'm going to have Adam or Julia, uh, one of the two, post the lyrics to the song you just heard on the site. Uh, You can read them yourself and listen to the song as you read those lyrics. I think it's a beautiful way to capture the the essence of this episode today. So head over to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com for links uh, that uh, from things we've mentioned today. And you're looking for Season 4, Episode 33. And this is a podcast from Lifetree, by the way. You could subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next week when we'll start a new series heading into the fall. We'll see you then.